Awesome. So we've got Ben Simmons here. Do you want to give your uh, your quick introduction? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, my name is Ben Simmons. I am the CEO and co-founder of Table Needs. Uh, Table Needs is a restaurant technology company that has solutions ranging from point of sale, online ordering, QR menus, you name it, all the way through with what we call done for you services. Um, in bookkeeping and marketing and even filing for uh, restaurants. And our mission is to help restaurants become profitable uh, because we believe that leads to happier communities. And we believe it leads to more diverse communities when there's more options and when those options are financially stable. And that's what kind of drives us and wakes me up every day to keep doing, to keep doing what I'm doing today. Yeah, that's awesome. And I'm sort of curious if you could uh, tell us exactly what your your value prop is, and then specifically, what's the story behind how you found it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm a restaurateur myself. Um, I, I own uh, soon to be three restaurants, and I am uh, kind of my own customer, if you will. And so the value proposition that we have at Table Needs um, is, is near and dear to me because it's something that I struggle with with every day. But restaurants, a lot of them, uh, especially since COVID, are just out there trying to make it. Uh, mm. And we we help with that. So in terms of like, why does the world need another restaurant point of sale? Um, I would say that the future is one automated platform and that that platform needs to um, kind of know what's in stock, what sells best, how profitable or not your business is, what bills are coming due, what are the average ticket times for top dishes, um, and kind of help you achieve customers based off of all of those data points that are in, in one singular platform. And so Table Needs is trying to become that. So today, where we really find a lot of customers is they may start with Clover or Square or something like that, and then they may outgrow it and need something more specific to restaurants. Um, and we're, we're kind of sitting right there. There's some other options, but we, we've really found an identity with kind of white glove service. So we help you get, get through that transition. Um, we help you import your menu into the system, get your staff trained on it, all of those things, and then kind of understand your restaurant's flow. So we're really in the business of helping restaurants at wherever they're at in their journey today. Um, and kind of get to whatever the next milestone is that is important to them as we continue to grow along our journey as well. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's fascinating, which, I mean, even I didn't know that you, you know, owned your own restaurants as well. So it's interesting because I know you have that software background. You can still, you know, look with yeah. both both lenses or wear two hats and try to identify, you know, where yeah. the gaps are. I, I, I definitely have experienced well, I guess first of all, I think it's a. I guess it's it's probably a pretty small club. Uh, the amount of people that have made a point of sale and then opened a restaurant with that point of sale, um, but but I've definitely experienced uh, deja vu when I've been inside my own restaurants and seeing a problem in my point of sale and saying, "Oh yeah, yeah, that would that would kind of anger me too. <laughs> I need to fix that." Or, "Oh, I can see why we need this feature." So. I run product as well at Table Needs uh, because of my background on the engineering side and and um, that all that kind of 
leads together to hopefully uh, us prioritizing the right things to help people. Exactly. And I mean, I guess besides yourself then, but um, what's the story of how you acquired your first customer then? Yeah, so uh, our first customer was a brewery, actually, and we acquired that customer. And I guess it depends on how you classify the first customer. So we we kind of alpha tested really in, in this customer's restaurant and we got introduced to them through, at the time, our first VP of sales and uh, just a mutual connection. And I just leveled with them and said, look, here's what I'm building. I'd love for you to be an early adopter of this. Um, and, but just know, like, it's going to be buggy and, and we're going to have to work through things. So, like, the early days were me in a brewery in Mobile, Alabama, and uh, literally, like, with my laptop talking to the other co-founders and engineers on the team with my earbuds. And like, I, I can remember fixing bugs actually at the table with guests. So um, acquiring that first customer though, uh, in terms of an early adopter, I think it's important to let them in on your journey uh, or the hero's journey, if you will, and just let them know exactly because they, they've got to be an advocate for you, a proponent of your own success and, uh, be willing to put up with, especially on the software side, um, you know, growing pains and all of those things. Um, so there's that that milestone of the first customer and then like the first 10 customers, first 100 customers, and you learn along the way and then you start to get pickier and understand what you're looking for. But uh, each milestone gets a little bit, little bit easier, I would say, at least in my experience, um, until you get to the place where you are kind of looking more at what are my unit economics instead of just trying to get anybody to take your product and try it, right? Mm -hmm. That makes sense. And so what about point of sale really stood out to you as a pain point that you wanted to tackle? Yeah, um, so we started actually as a QR menu solution and we we told everybody, well, we told our internal thing was like, we believed that a menu should be your menu, not a menu. And so we wanted to tie all kinds of data points about yourself and your allergies, your preferences, all these things. So that when you scanned a QR menu, you got your menu um, and it customized it to your needs. And what we found was that in order to build anything and in order to um, innovate, we were at the mercy of the points of sale, right? Because we they controlled the payments. And so in order to make the most convenient experience that we could, we needed to control the payment experience. And they did not like that. Um, and because that was threatening their, their lifeblood, if you will, in terms of, you know, there's a lot of money to be made in, in payment processing. So not only that, but we couldn't control our own growth cycle. Um, we were at the mercy of how soon they could, they could work on an integration with us or work on a specific customer. So we said, well, let's bring it in in-house so that we can control our own destiny. So it, it initially started as a need for us so that we could control our own onboarding speed so that we could control 
um, our own future, if you will. But then it turned into quickly, okay, well, <laughs> here's some gaps that are not being addressed well. And so we found spaces in the market, uh, even though you would definitely say this is a relatively saturated market that weren't being addressed well. And I'd still say that some of them you'd, you'd look at and think, man, somebody's got to be doing that, but, but they're not. Um, we, we started to, um, stay and, and, and position ourselves that we wanted to bring franchise level tooling and the point of sale and, and all the things that, that touch that your online ordering, whatever franchise level tooling to the mom and pop. But then we started to realize that franchises themselves weren't being addressed well. And so we've started to cater to becoming kind of the easy button to start up a restaurant whether you're a franchise or you're a mom and pop. And that's why we partnered with uh, companies like LegalZoom to do uh, Table Needs Filer and um, to, to bring specific like restaurant marketing to the table as part of your point of sale. So um, what really interested us about the point of sale market, though, I, if I had to boil it down, um, is that any innovation in the space seemed to be blocked by one, um, the willingness to try new things in the space, which COVID completely changed. And uh, at the same time, the average age of restaurateur in our country shifted to the millennial, which was another big shift that happened that we didn't really notice. And so all this tech adoption started to happen. But two, uh, the points of sale that had been around for a while, the big enterprisey ones, they um, we're trying to hold on to their existing business models and we're really in a lot of ways stifling innovation. So it became a necessity for us more than anything. Hmm. Hmm. That's really interesting. Cause it's, 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 uh, you know, inherent at, at some points, but you know, with the COVID shift, I bet there's mm -hmm. been a lot of, you know, development in this space, but um, you did mention, you know, previously you have some mom and pops and then you also have mm -hmm. your, your franchises, but um, specifically on the small businesses, uh, you know, what tips and tricks um, do you have when your target customer is that mom and pop? Yeah, so um, <laughs> so selling to SMBs or, or small businesses um, has, is a double-edged sword in a lot of ways, um, especially if you're headed out to fundraise, uh, whether it's Silicon Valley fundraising or not. Um, there's there, there are certain VCs that are all about it, but there's a lot of them that will run for the hills the second that you tell them you're founding a business that's going to sell to SMBs. Um, and because they can be notoriously hard to sell to and they can churn easily and there's a whole, um, you know, signing up one customer and getting 200 locations is a lot more appealing than signing up one customer that's going to do a fraction of the volume of one of those 200 locations, exactly. right? So <laughs> it's, 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 it's something that I would say first, you need to, like anything, model it out, make sure that it makes sense to you, not that not, you know, man to your business and that you think, you know, not just that you want to do it, but that you can achieve something realistic with it. But then if you get to that place and you are selling to small businesses, again, it depends on if we're talking inbound or outbound, but a lot of our early stuff was outbound, boots on the ground, walk into the business. Hey, we're table needs. This is what we do. And that's how we got our name out in a few key markets. That's how we, in a lot of ways, did market research, right? 
And that's before true. we ever found out, before we ever found out what marketing would work for us, mm-hmm. which, you know, thank God we're now getting into that space. But mm-hmm. what I noticed, <laughs> I think I sent around like an internal memo at one point um, called like the sale of 15 minutes. Um, and the point of it was that I was out in the field at the time as a co-founder and, and people were struggling to sell our product for this reason, that reason, and the other. And I said, well, well, okay, well, I'll go sell it and see how it goes. Right. And so I noticed that if you walk in the door and you say, Hey, I'm selling the point of sale, right. <laughs> or whatever it is. Um, it's, it's, it's like uh walking up to somebody and trying to kiss them on the mouth immediately without asking them what on date first right it's 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 not the right order you need mm-hmm. to ask for their time right um and so that became kind of our mantra was the sale of 15 minutes right hey you know my name's ben i work in the restaurant space we have a restaurant point of sale some other things uh, i just want to get 10 15 minutes of your time do you you know i know you're busy right now but hey do you have mm-hmm. 10, 15 minutes of time, can I get on a calendar? And then when I did that, our sales started to become so much easier because mm-hmm. they, it was a smaller decision for them to make, right? Mm-hmm. Just like you give away an email for a lead magnet or something like that, right? You're purchasing it. You're just purchasing it with your email, right? So mm-hmm. I was asking them for their time, uh, for the chance of, you know, just, just that it might be valuable to them. And then I'd say tailoring your pitch uh, to that specific customer. So I knew a lot about restaurants and I could notice a lot of things just walking in the door, like, oh, they probably have this problem or that problem, Mm -hmm. but also just allowing them to tell me outright and asking some questions that were open-ended, you know, what are your biggest challenges? Do you have an issue with, with this, right? What are your biggest issues as a business? Uh, And then coming back to them during those 10, 15 minutes and saying, look, here's how I think our product might be able to help you. I don't know, but let's see, Mm -hmm. right? And then I'd say outside of that, it's all about establishing credibility. Small businesses and small business owners, they're busy people. A lot of them, especially younger ones, are just trying to keep their head above water in the restaurant space they're definitely trying to just get through the lunch rush or or whatever so you you walk in the door and say hey let's rip out your point of sale and start over you know that's not something they want to talk about it's a big commitment right Mm -hmm. so establishing credibility in any way that you can if you can say i'm a restaurant owner uh i own a restaurant in this location um one of my restaurants won best business in the county and mm-hmm. that gave me personally some credibility and our salespeople credibility to be able to say, hey, our co-founders got, you know, these credentials. So what, what any, whatever way you can to establish some credibility in their eyes to say, all right, yeah, I'll give you 15 minutes. It might be worth it, right? And, and then at that point, to some degree, you, your product has to take over. It has to, there has to be a value prop there for them. Because uh, once you get their time and attention, it, it, you then have to be honest with yourself, right? And that's where, um, you know, we talked about why did I, what were the pain points I was trying to solve with a point of sale? Well, we learned a lot of our pain points along the way, not just because I was running my own restaurant, but because we would talk to our customers, right? So um, understanding <laughs> that you're going to, 
have to um, pivot from where you're at in that moment um, and or kind of learn something new and apply it, even though it may be uncomfortable, is a real part of any startup. I think the best advice I ever got in terms of that was somebody once told me that in order to have a successful startup, you must embrace the embarrassment. Because it is, it is embarrassing. It is embarrassing to to bear your your blood, sweat, and tears into something, and then for people to use it for five minutes and call it crap, right? Mm-hmm. It's embarrassing to pick somebody. Game. Yeah, right. It's embarrassing to get a restaurant down the street from your house to use it, and it end up not working out because they really need some feature that you didn't really fully understand they needed in the beginning, and then you got to see those people, right? Like, but that that embarrassment, I, I think they. Uh, when I was studying food and bev, um, I think I, I once heard uh, that they say every complaint is a gift, right? Uh, and, and you you got to choose what to do with that gift. And that's true in the product world too. A lot of people will just stop using your product or will leave you a bad review or just say nothing to you and then churn. Um, the ones that speak up in a lot of ways are giving you a gift, even though it may not feel like it in that moment. And you just have to choose what to do with it. Um, so being able to take criticism, take feedback, be willing to be out there and be embarrassed um, and understand that that embarrassment is not a failure, but that it's another way not to make a light bulb and that you're getting closer mm-hmm. is the right mentality to have. And, you know, it's definitely not for the faint of heart to start any kind of business, but especially one that you want to be able to scale, uh, one in the SaaS space and the software space, what have you. Um, it's hard. And uh, there's a lot of thankless days. But then uh, if you have a vision for where you're headed and your team shares that vision, you have to kind of lean on that. And that, that's what gets you through. Yeah, that makes sense. And um, I guess another thing we're wondering about is a lot of startups are in San Francisco, which has mm-hmm. its ups and downs, obviously. And I'm wondering, mm-hmm. since you're outside of San Francisco, what are some of the things you've done differently? Uh, yeah, so this is, um, this is a question I've gotten before on, on numerous occasions. It's, it's, it's a very frustrating thing. So uh, we're, we're raising a fund uh, around rather right now and i've been purposely seeking for dollars outside of san francisco uh just because i you know i've, I've raised some from there already of course uh, sometimes you have to but um it's it's something that i want to see become more of the norm and there's a lot more funds that have started to spring up that that focus on you know what a lot of people call flyover country or territory or whatever uh, or they may have a, you know, every fund has a either a thesis or a geographic focus or or something that kind of drives their investment engine. Uh, a lot of them focus, some of them on the Midwest, some of them on the South, but the, the bulk of them, you know, still are out West and in New York and, and all of that. So my my sort of mentality of that, when people ask me like, um, you know, isn't it hard to build a startup out of San Francisco? I almost feel like it should be easier to build it out of San Francisco apart from fundraising, right? Mm. Because that that's really, I mean, and I mean, tell me if you, if I'm wrong, but like, I feel like that's what most people mean by that question is 
it's really hard to get money because you can't just walk into all of these places in San Francisco and, and, and get money. And they, they don't necessarily take people that aren't in, that are in flyover country seriously all the time. Right. Yeah. Um, well, I think, I think from my personal experience, um, what I found is one of the difficult things of being in a flyover uh, state is not just like fundraising, but also like matching with co-founders and just networking with the people uh, yeah. that are really into entrepreneurship. It seems like, um, yep. it seems like that's a difficulty, at least for me. So. That is definitely a difficulty. Um, so I didn't have so much that problem, um, but uh, co-founders are are a tough nut to crack all the way around. Um, I, I had the benefit of having worked remotely for probably like 10 years before I did this and having a lot of relationships already. <laughs> and um, the co-founders, I was sort of like the, the final co-founder, if you will, and we all sort of went full time at the same time. So they were all kind of like, it was all sort of laid out for me when I, when I, when I went to, into table me. Um, but it's definitely a big decision and then meeting and finding those people. Um, so one thing that I have found and, and maybe not everybody even had this, but there are a lot of small business centers. They're like, we have a place locally called like the innovation portal and there's somebody in that community, whether it's the, the dean of the local business college or um, somebody that's running an incubator that you may not have even known was there or is it within a four or five hour drive or whatever. There's somebody that has connections that's going to be able to connect you. Um, and, and so it depends on your personality. Uh, some people are just natural connectors of people. And I found some people like that in my community that have been invaluable to me and my business. Um, and so I think, especially if you're either more introverted or if you're kind of more on the visionary spectrum and you're very product centric or whatever, finding somebody like that and then becoming friends with them, take them out to lunch, whatever, and let them understand a little bit about who you are because then they're probably gonna wanna help you if they're a natural connector, right? Um, but in terms of like, that fundraising and talent acquisition, we're fully remote. Um, so talent acquisition is, <clears throat> is, 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 it's hard like anything, but it, we don't necessarily have to put them in a certain office. And that traditionally a lot of businesses would say, oh, let's open an office here. And then, you know, that didn't work out because we can find the right talent. We'll move it down the street over here. I think really the sweet spot of work is more hybrid. Mm -hmm. um, I think that having been remote for a long time, been a big proponent of that the whole time, at least in my personal experience, I think you should allow remote. I think that should be more the default than not. But I think you then put down some roots and build around some key, key players. And that has a really big impact on productivity um, and, and gives you a space to um, even if it's just the local co-working space or whatever, a space to um, drive energy up because getting together in person really does have an impact on that. Um, so I don't know, there's probably a slew of other things that that we could unpack in terms of starting a, a, a company like this, not on the coasts, but people are doing it every day. Unicorns are coming out of the Midwest and the South. Um, whether they, 
you know, thought it would happen or not, it's happening. And um, it's just, you, you might have a few extra things stacked against you. Because I will say, having met extensively with venture capitalists all over this country, both remotely and then having met some in person, it's a lot different when you are meeting in person and you're able to make a bigger impact in a lot of ways. So fundraising specifically, I could see being at a disadvantage for it. That's why we have to uh, fight for more of these funds to be, um, to be a, and support them to and support the companies that they invest in and our communities to continue to be around. And that's why I want to take some money that's more geographically near me so that I can help build that up. Yep, makes sense. Um, and something you said really caught my interest. And I'm wondering, do you have an interesting co-founder story or how did you, uh, how'd you guys all group up? <laughs> so I was the last one. So, um, so I came from a company, I was VP of engineering at a company called Swerkit for about five years. <laughs> and um, I was there uh, in the early days and we went from, you know, being pretty small, we actually were on Shark Tank and that made us blow up. <laughs> Um, and, and, and they were a tech stars, uh, backed company. And, um, I helped take them from, you know, early days to millions of users. We were in 13 languages. We were global, but since it was a tech stars company, I ended up getting an introduction to some of the co-founders of SendGrid. Um, and SendGrid was just coming off of going public New York stock exchange, uh, and then Twilio acquired them in a public stock acquisition. And so I kind of got taken under the wing of the former CTO of SendGrid, Tim. He kind of became my mentor for a while. Uh, and then he had table needs lined up with um, uh, a former um, younger engineer from SendGrid and then uh, a, a mutual friend of theirs who was had worked in one of the top grossing restaurants in like the world in Hollywood um, and he was there for like 10 years. So we, we had, we had kind of engineering skill between all three of us. Um, we had the, the money backing us from, from the SendGrid acquisitions. And then we had all this restaurant expertise. And then right after that COVID shut down the whole world. <laughs> and, and so, um, that was in many ways, serendipitous though because it was a lot of opportunity um i think had we uh probably gone full-time several months sooner it would have been even more uh better timing for us but ultimately it led us down the path that it did and i think we're better for it so um you know being a co-founder is is complicated um especially if you're a first-time co-founder um, I would say that it's always good to try to pair up with somebody that's been there, done that if you can. And if you can't, which a lot of times is not possible um, because those people have had their exits, then you need to find mentorship. And it doesn't matter if you need to give stock options away to those people or if you need to actually pay them and you have the funding to pay them. Find somebody that's been to the top of the mountain that you're trying to climb, right, from different angles, right? We, we um, had to go find people like that in just about 
every one of the disciplines of our company. And I think we're, we're better off for it. Um, and what you need in that moment changes month over month, quarter over quarter. So um, you bring a certain amount of skill set to the table with your, with your partners, if you will, with your, your partners in crime, your, your co-founders. And then you just have to be really honest with each other about uh, where, you, where you're lacking. And then I'd say the hardest thing about co-founders is almost always you have to move them around, right? Like I originally joined the company as the CTO and here I am the CEO. Um, I think one of my co-founders has moved positions probably like four times. Mm -hmm. um, and you kind of go wherever you're needed. You do support if you have to do support. You code if you have to code. You know, you do whatever you have to do, even as you scale. At some point, those generalists that were so important to the early days, though, um, become more sources of knowledge and context and support and cheerleading and speakers within the organization that people listen to than they do individual contributors. Um, and that is just because as you grow, you find people that do more specific jobs. And, and then like today, like I may code a little bit from time to time, but every line of code that I write is future technical debt for the company because it's not what I'm going to do. Right. And so that's the, the struggle of being a co-founder and having those real and real tough conversations from time to time is hard to do and keep it kind <laughs> sometimes uh, with each other. And then it's hard to do and um, not, not, um, you know, to, 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 to manage that co-founder relationship can just generally be, be a struggle. But if you're, that's why so many co-founders that are successful had some sort of relationship prior. Thing. That makes sense. And they're able to yeah. able to talk. I have to ask. So you were you were on Shark Tank then? I was not on Shark Tank. Oh, I was the VP of Engineering. I have a face <laughs> for radio. That's, that's uh, our C, our two co-founders in that company were on Shark Tank. Uh, which you could go look it up, um, Ben and Greg, and 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 I guess uh, Ryan is the third co-founder there. But um, the 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 CEO and the COO at the time uh, did the pitch. I think we were maybe five people in total at the time. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it was it was pretty crazy. I remember that we were just sort of sitting around biting our nails about the website going down. Uh, and then every time that there was a rerun, we would just get this huge spike <laughs> in in traffic. So, oh, that's so that's, yeah, that's wild. Well, yeah. I just wanted to uh, give you the option to share anything else you want to share or give any final advice before we let you go. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that I have anything specific. It's it's all just. I mean, I guess the. I have one thing, I guess. So um, I've talked to and sought out a lot of mentorship. I have one mentor that's been a CEO for, I want to say since the 90s. Um, and I'm a first time CEO. So um, I have a lot to learn. Green behind the ears. So be coachable is one thing for sure. Um, 
And if you approach people and just ask for what you need uh, and be willing to receive feedback, um, show them that you're willing to receive that feedback. I, I think people, you'd be surprised uh, what people would be willing to do for you, share with you, promote you, etc. And I think that probably the, the, the hardest truth uh, in this space is you have to survive. You like the, the companies that survive, like we just hit a million ARR, um, which was a milestone for us. And I think something I read like 85% of businesses or something don't, don't ever achieve that milestone, right? So to some degree, you just have to survive long enough to, um, for somebody else, for the right person to, to notice or for you to get to profitability. Um, and it's, you have to do whatever you have to do. I've done some really hard stuff from layoffs to anything else um, that you name it, I've had to do in this company to date in order to survive because this was a weird time in the history of starting companies the last few years. The economy has been up and down um, and, and all of those things. Valuations have been sky high. They've been rock bottom. It just, it just depends uh, on the day of the week and, and what's happening in the world. So, um, you know, hang in there. It is definitely a survivor's game. If you're fundraising, I'd say, you know, treat it like a, a sales pitch. Go pitch to 100 people and uh, somebody's going to see the value in you and your idea and just be true to what you're trying to do. Um, it will eventually, it will eventually pay off. So I guess that's my advice. Be coachable. Um, it's, it's, it's a long game and you have to, you have to uh, take your lumps and uh, show up the next day, ready to, ready to get going again. And if you can do those things and remain positive, then um, you can, I think you can lead an organization because your energy is what everyone else is going to feed off. If you're being negative, it's going to feel bad. If you're being positive, it's going to, it's going to feed into everybody else. That sounds great. Well, we'll call it our apps there, uh, but we're really glad that you came on the show. Yeah. Thanks so much. Thanks, Ben.